conversation features Rebecca Maestas Sincere, the Executive Director of Marketing for Clear Cannabis Inc. Rebecca is an industry veteran and a proven leader with 13 plus years of industry experience and a true passion for the cannabis industry. Her expertise is building strong retail and wholesale brands through market research, smart product development, creative marketing, and specific market positioning to penetrate the target niche. Currently leading a team at Clear Cannabis Inc., established in 2012, by a team of scientists who brought molecular distillation to the legal cannabis market, and in the process, reinvented the cannabis vape category. Rebecca owns and oversees the evolution of all brands under their portfolio, including the Clear, T-Wax, Endo, and Dope, while developing new product categories. She has translated her desire to combine cannabis and music together by cultivating alliances between the industry and musicians who have an affinity for the plant. Working with Leafs by Snoop, Cypress Hill, Red Man and Method Man, and Kamani Marley, to name a few. Rebecca created the first celebrity-endorsed edible with Sublime with Rome, Orange Dynamite, a milk chocolate and orange bar flavor profile that was crowdsourced by the Secret Society of Bud Tenders and launched in Colorado in 2016. Hi, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of Party Like a Marketer, the podcast dedicated to cannabis marketing, public relations, and authentic storytelling. Today's guest is Rebecca Maestas Sincere, the Executive Director of Marketing for Clear Cannabis, Inc., representing the brands and portfolio underneath the Clear brand. Rebecca, thank you so much for being here with us today. Hi, Lisa. It's great to see you. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. So as you know, our podcast is all about cannabis marketing, and you are an industry veteran. You've been working in this space for a while, and you know it really well. So can you tell our audience a little bit about who you are, who The Clear is, um, what you do in your history in the cannabis industry and marketing? Yeah, sure. Not a problem. Uh, So I am a Colorado native. So I've been here for pretty much the majority of my life. Went uh, to school back east for a few years, but Colorado always seems to call me back. It's truly my home. Um, And I've been in the legal marketing uh, space for the last 13 years, approximately. So started out as one of the very first infused product manufacturers here in the state of Colorado. That was really before the regulatory framework um, was built out. So um, in about 2008, we saw a bunch of dispensaries come online and went out and started asking dispensary operators um, what patients were looking for. And at the time, they said uh, nobody was making a decent tincture. So I had a group of friends uh, who learned how to cultivate and grow starting in high school, um, went to Cherry Creek High School. And in 2000, when the law officially changed here uh, under caregivership, they opened up a warehouse grow. So it was a large setting for them to be able to cultivate. Really, that's how the black market was really fueled for, for a while. But nobody was truly doing any sort of extraction. So when they would harvest their plants, they would take all the trim and it would just be thrown into to the dumpster. It was just considered trash. So I went to them and I said, hey, next time you pull down a harvest, could I come get your trash? And they said, sure, no problem. So I went and I picked up two huge garbage bags full of trim and stems and went into my kitchen in a townhome um, that I had at the time. And we started formulating. So we were making glycerin based tinctures, just using the, the biomass that we were getting from our friends and created a line of tinctures called Canamix. So we had a whole uh, multitude of different flavors that we offered, went out into the market and started sampling them at first 
I just went to Vitamin Cottage and bought just the the amber glass um, dropper bottles. Anything that I could find on the shelf, went home, home printed a label, slapped it on there, started sampling. People really liked it. So from there, we were able to scale up, you know, started buying um, the bottles by the case, scaled up, bought, you know, the glycerin by the five gallon buckets then. So it was truly taking somebody else's trash and turning it into what I considered treasure um, for not only the patients, but but for ourselves as we continued to build that small business. So as the regulations continued to change, um, it got a little bit more complicated as far as how you could produce products, where you could produce them, what the licensing um, requirements were. So there was a period of time where we could share commissary kitchens here in the Denver area with uh, producers who were not producing THC infused products. That didn't last for a very long time. So then a group of us kind of banded together and we're using sort of this uh, one facility uh, and then the regulations changed again, where only one license could be associated with one facility. So, you know, it, it just continued to, to change and evolve and it got really uh, difficult. So about that time, I went into partnership um, with Caregivers for Life. So I was part owner um, in that, which was a, a medical shop at the time located in Cherry Creek North. Um, we had uh, five different licenses, some cultivation license, a MIP license, and then um, the retail license or the dispensary license. Um, I helped build out the MIP facility that was it within that building because I had had the, the operational experience already from doing that, you know, trying to keep my, my business afloat. Um, that uh, business actually went south as far as the relationship. And so I actually left the industry for about a year, went out, and I was um, managing salespeople on the floor at the airport for J.P. Morgan Chase. So we were selling credit cards for United and Southwest. It was actually a really fun job, just a lot of interaction with people on the floor. It was really high, high pay, high and fast paced. It was a lot of fun, um, but the contract ended. And so I found myself, you know, trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And I had already cultivated some relationships within the industry from being in before and starting that business. So I reached out to one of my friends who at the time was working at Dixie. And uh, she had posted something on Facebook, I think that was, you know, said they were looking for a particular, uh, to fill a particular position. So I reached out to her personally and said, hey, you think they might be interested in me? She said, absolutely. I went in um, and interviewed for the position and landed the, the job. So at first, when I joined Dixie Brands, I was um, tasked with helping them build a product and brand called Dixie Botanicals. So it was the first hemp derived uh, line of products to be offered to all 48 states here in the U.S. It was traded on the pink sheets under MJNA, Medical Marijuana Incorporated. It was a joint venture with a partner out in San Diego. So I, uh, myself, I worked on the retail side of things, and I had one counterpart who worked on the wholesale side. I was really responsible for a lot of the inbound inquiries, so emails, phone calls, things like that. People really looking for alternative solutions for themselves and or they were an advocate for a patient. It might have been you know, an infant or somebody who was elderly or um, somebody um, who was at the end of life and just needed um, something to kind of get them through or, and or it could have been their pet. So I was able to amass a massive database of anecdotal data, just speaking with people and really started to understand the nuances and the differences between the way pharmaceutical uh, medicines work and um, 
cannabinoids and, and within the endocannabinoid system. So that was really interesting. Um, they ended up severing that relationship after a year. So we built that from zero to $6 million in the first year. And then they sold their portion back to the other partner in San Diego. So I went out there, trained everybody, and then jumped back to the THC side um, with Dixie Brands and helped them. Um, I was there for seven years. So I was doing the, the marketing for them. And at one point was the acting VP of both marketing and sales for Dixie Brands as they uh, marched towards their IPO in 2018. So um, was afforded a lot of really great opportunities and experiences there, created the first celebrity endorsed edible in the cannabis space with Sublime with Rome called Orange Dynamite. Also worked with the Leafs by Snoop uh, crew and all of that. That was originally a contract that was taken on by Live Well Enlightened Health. Um, but they quickly realized that they couldn't keep up with the demand as far as uh, the production on the manufacturing edible side. So Dixie ended up taking over that portion of the contract. So I was able to, to work on that side too. Um, so that was all uh, really fun and exciting. In 2018, um, they ended up uh, going public. And then the next year in 2019, I made the transition from Dixie over to Live Well Enlightened Health. And I helped them with brand development um, so I built out 10 brands for LiveWell uh, while I was there. So I was hoping, helping with the wholesale side of things as they continued to expand their footprint here in Colorado and then becoming an MSO uh, up in Michigan. So uh, at first, the idea was for them to open up some retail uh, sites in Michigan, but with COVID and some other challenges, we ended up having to pivot. And so we were mainly focused on wholesale at first. So wholesaling the flour at first as it was being harvested and then quickly moving into extraction. So building out a hashtag hash and magnitude those brands for them up there as well. So that was um, also a great experience. I was there for two years and then made the transition over from Livewell to Clear Cannabis in November of last year. So started the week of um, Thanksgiving. So I've been there just um, a little over what, maybe five months now, four months. So it's, it's already been uh, a great ride with them. I love the crew over at the clear. So I'm really enjoying everything that we're doing right now. And uh, also this company um, has intentions to go public uh, at some point this year as well. And tell us a little bit about the clear and their brands um, and, and their footprint in Colorado. Sure. So uh, the clear is mainly known for their vape products that they sell. That's really their flagship. They do uh cartridges, both in half grams and one grams, as well as all in one units or disposables and uh, 350 milligrams. They come in a multitude of different flavors. That's what the clear is really known for is all the different flavors that they provide. Um, also really known, well known for consistency. So in 2012, uh, there was a group of scientists that came together and created this process called molecular distillation which is what we now know across the industry as uh, when you talk about a product that has distillate in it. So they really created um, the first line in California at the time, and then their products hit the shelves in early of 2013. So um, been around for better part of a decade now, and uh, really we're based uh, around consistency. That's really what the clear tries to deliver. So it doesn't matter what market that you're purchasing their products in, you can always rely on the product being consistent, not only in the quality, but also the flavor. Awesome. And are they yeah. just, and where are they located? It's not just Colorado, right? Yeah, that's correct. So here in Colorado, we have our flagship products that I just talked about. We recently launched another brand called Twax, which is an infused pre-roll product. So we have that now in 1.25. 
single units as well as minis, which are sort of little dog walkers, those, those we just launched. Um, and those have distillate infused into them as well as just a hint of flavor. So those really pack a punch as far as being um, extremely potent. And then uh, we just also uh, launched another product called Endo, which is a new one for us here in Colorado. And that one is more market specific. So it's, uh, it's a live resin formulation. So we're taking um, fresh harvested flour and um, pulling off not only the terpenes, but the resin off of it, and then formulating it with a little bit of distillate. So it's a really interesting product. So we currently, our footprint is California, Colorado, Nevada, Michigan, uh, Missouri, uh, Massachusetts, and Oklahoma. So we're in seven states currently um, with a, a goal to be in another seven by the end of this year. Oh, wow. That's, that's a lot in a year. Yeah. That's exciting. It is. Yeah. A lot of work. Awesome. Okay. So, so, so I want to talk a little bit about effective marketing strategies. Um, so sure. you've, you know, you've seen marketing and cannabis from the beginning for small businesses, that local footprint to, um, you know, big state players to now working with multiple MSOs. So what are some effective marketing strategies that you see brands utilizing in the space? And if you want to touch specifically on anything that would be specific to either vape products or, um, you know, kind of what you focus on, I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. Sure, sure. So I think it's really evolved over time. You know, um, I've always been uh, pretty scrappy, I think, and savvy when it comes to marketing, especially in this space. You know, I don't think that a lot of traditional marketing strategies really translate over into the space. And I've seen that time and time again, where executives from other CPG um, categories try to come into the space and take what they've learned from there and, and make it translate here. It's just not quite the same. You know, first of all, the regulatory framework that we have to work within makes it really challenging and it really reduces the amount of opportunities that we have. Um, one thing that I did when I was at Dixie is I created the first kind of bud tender network. It was called the Secret Society of Bud Tenders. And the idea was really to endear them to the brand, right? So make our brand really stand out and be at their the, the forefront of their minds when they're selling products at the point of sale. In my opinion, bud tenders are some of the most influential people um, in the industry because they, they truly do call the shots at the point of sale. So they can make or break a brand or a product just uh, on their opinion alone. Um, so I did have some success with that. More recently with the Clear, I've created a new bud tender network called the Clear Connect. So it's the same kind of concept where we are trying to band together a lot of bud tenders um, from different retailers from all across the state and bring them together in social gatherings. So we're really trying to transcend that virtual relationship that we've had to cultivate now over the last couple of years with COVID and transcend that into more of um, a physical um, gathering. So actually tomorrow is going to be our first gathering that we're hosting. Um, it's going to be at the Miris uh, Gallery and Art Bar, and that's in conjunction with kickoff to April, which is the award ceremony for the THC uh, Classic. And that's the largest cannabis competition here in the state. So we're really excited to do that. So one thing that we're going to do, uh, for instance, for this particular gathering and group is we are inviting 300 uh, VIP industry members into our space. We're going to be giving out limited edition swag bags. I've created some um, merchandise that's very exclusive and limited to people who are only within the network. Um, so it's all about creating um, really kind of that, I don't, in my opinion, it's more about that kind of underground feel, staying really true to the culture and that core audience 
um, which is our bud tenders, you know, and, and bringing people together in, in a community in a way where they can network together and spread more knowledge. And it's a great way for us to really learn more from uh, experts in the industry who are those bud tenders. Um, so, you know, we can gather a lot of great intel. So that, that's definitely one strategy that I think is very important. And I will continue to expand that program into other markets. You know, I consider Colorado really our, the mothership for the clear. So we like to test things in this market. And if things are successful, then we'll expand it into other markets. So that, that's definitely something that, you know, is, is different that a lot of other brands aren't doing. But like I said, I've, I've seen some real success out of it. And with, um, so I want to talk a little bit more about that butt tender relationship and particularly how things have changed over the last two years with COVID. Are you seeing, um, you know, either at your work at the clear or in general with the industry as, as um, you know, we're going back to in-person events, more of a shift to that. And when that happens, are you seeing folks um, continue to do what they did the last two years as far as digital building those relationships online and keeping that presence? Or is it kind of going fully back online or in person? Basically what I'm trying to say is, is, is there a Let's focus now on the in-person connection, these events, bringing people out, getting them together and sort of dropping off any digital efforts, or is it about kind of ramping them both up together? Yeah, I think it's really a, a hybrid or two-prong approach at this point. Um, I don't think everybody is 100% comfortable in going back to, to in-person events. And, you know, you have to be respectful of people and, and how they feel uh, about this new world that we live in. Um, so I think it's important to maintain both a presence, um, both physically as well as virtually. I also think that people are really excited about being able to get out and go to in-person events and experience these things that they um, were able to, uh, but haven't been able to in the last couple of years. So I do feel as though, um, you know, there's sort of that angst. People want to get out and and, and talk to people and, and see new things and experience things, um, not just behind the computer screen or, or a phone. So, um, so I think that digital campaigning is also extremely important. You know, there are a lot of digital marketing opportunities that can really move the needle. Um, and the great thing about those efforts is they're measurable with metrics that can be monitored easily. Um, and, you know, utilizing digital programmatic campaigns. Um, you know, we, there's some existing platforms such as iHeartJane that I leverage even today that uh, they have some great programs in there. Um, there's also just traditional digital programmatic advertising, you know, where you're serving up ads on a, a cell phone and kind of tracking the consumer as they go through the journey. Um, the, the nice thing about that is as far as granular data, you can get down to seeing the person that you actually served the first ad to all the way through them visiting a dispensary. So for example, I had some great uh, luck with that up in the Michigan market when we had launched hashtag hash while I was at Livewell, um, we were able to create a campaign driving consumers specifically to retailers to purchase that product. And the metrics that I was seeing at the time was around 75 cents cost per visit. Um, that is almost unheard of. You know, that, that, that's so inexpensive to drive one consumer into a dispensary. We, that, the challenge is you can't really track all the way through the POS system to be able to see what they actually purchased. The only way you can do that is if you partner with a POS partner such as iHeartJane or Dutchy or one of those other partners where they're at, in real time, they're actually able to feed in that 
uh, data that's coming from the POS system. But even being able to track and see a consumer walking into a dispensary is really effective because, you know, I would say probably what, 95% of the time, maybe higher. If a consumer walks into a dispensary, they're going to purchase something, you know, they're not just window shopping. <laughs> it's not yeah. that kind of experience. So, so I do think that those tools um, that can measure very specific outcomes and help distill that, that data in a digestible format to be able to, um, present to, you know, an executive committee or other team members to really show them how that revenue is really ramping up, not only to help um, the brand side of things, which is what I do, but also, you know, our, our partners at the manufacturing level in other states, and then also our retail partners. That makes sense. And you had mentioned that you use Colorado as a test market, and then you, you know, adjust as you launch into new markets. I'm guessing that you meant that from sort of that product level perspective, but is there in any way that that also translates to marketing where maybe you take a certain marketing approach in Colorado, but then when you launch, you know, say in Michigan or another state, for example, it would pivot or change based on either any feedback you've gotten or just adapting to the local culture there? Yeah, I mean, I think it's beyond just the local culture. I think it's also just the tools that um, operators have an affinity for, I think, across markets just varies. So, for instance, you know, LeafLink has a really high penetration here in Colorado. Michigan is a really great example um, where LeafLink has amazing success. But if you go to another market, such as California, for instance, they don't use LeafLink for the majority of, of of retailers out there. So it's not the same, um, you know, it's not consistent across all markets. So that's what also can be challenging is if you have seven markets to manage, then you have to really find the, the, the tools and the outlets that are going to be most effective and most successful in each one of those markets. Um, so here in Colorado, you know, for the bud tender network, for instance, that's something that we will definitely test in this market see how successful it is, and then kind of adapt and adjust as we continue to move into other markets. Um, another great market for us with that particular program will probably be Michigan, just because our partner out there has a consumption event space that we can also utilize. So that just helps, you know, bring the whole activation and, and the, the, that program together. That makes sense. Okay. Um, how about what are some advice you would share with young cannabis marketers who are looking to develop a personal and professional brand? Yeah, I think it's important to be creative while still playing um, within the sandbox. Um, you know, being genuine and sincere as you possibly can when marketing yourself, uh, but also the brands that you're developing. Um, I think I believe it's important to stay as close to the truth when building products and crafting messaging. Um, you know, consumers are really smart and they can tell when a brand is being genuine or not. So I, I really feel it's important. You know, sometimes people want to sort of stretch the truth or maybe kind of tweak it a little bit as far as messaging or communicating to consumers what's maybe in the formula or the effect that it might have. You know, I, and, it, and it is a challenge because we have to be so careful about what we say as far as um, function and what products can and can't do. You know, we can't talk about um, 
how it can address, you know, certain ailments. So that that can be difficult. Um, but I think it's it's still important to try and stay just as close to the truth as possible. Education is highly important at the industry facing level um, and in for consumers. I think being able to, you know, predict the effect of a particular product and what that's going to create for a consumer um, is going to continue to set brands apart, you know. Um, Consumers, especially those new to the cannabis market, you know, they want predictability and consistency. So that's why I've seen some MSOs have a difficult time really expanding their footprint across different markets is because sometimes their formulations won't be um, legal in certain markets. So I guess a good example of that would be when I was at Dixie, we had created these mints and they were effect-based. We had a relaxing mint and we had an awakening mint, but the effect wasn't coming from the THC because really THC is THC. If it, the first pass is happening in the liver, the liver can't really tell the difference between an indica or a sativa. So the way at the time they were creating the effect was based on other herbs and supplements that were in the formulation that sort of enhanced that effect. Well, when we started to move into the California marketplace, those were not allowed. So we basically had to go back to the drawing board and strip a lot of those ingredients out of the formula in order for it to make sense and legal in, in California, but also as we expanded the footprint across other markets for it to be really consistent. So that those are, you know, just some of the challenges. So, you know, the, the other issue is, you know, strains are going to vary from state to state and the way that the metric yeah. system is set up you, there's no legal way to bring a, a new strain into the marketplace at this point, unless you were a seed bank or had a, a separate facility that was licensed that's actually doing that scientific work and able to bring a new strain in. That, that's really the only way. So it's interesting for me to watch a lot of these um, retailers continue to kind of expand their offerings from a strain perspective because it's not, that's not really how, how the system is set up. Um, but yeah, so I think in the end, it's just my best advice would be, you know, um, if you're, if you're, if you have the opportunity to sit at a table with executives, you know, just, you know, lean into those conversations. Don't be afraid to, to share your experiences, um, you know, speak up, be resilient. I think many times it just takes a different perspective for others to understand, you know, how to overcome challenges, um, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you want to be confident in your ideas and clearly share your mission, your vision, your plans for your startup, you know, ask your peers to provide feedback. Ultimately, you want to be able to overcome any objection that's thrown at you. Um, but I, I think that, that that's a good way and probably good advice for, you know, anybody in the industry, whether you're male, female is, you know, just every. I think everybody has something to contribute and to share and everybody has great ideas. It's not um, those who are, who are just an executive level. Um, so, you know, sometimes that those best ideas are coming from people who you never even know that, that they had that skill set. Um, just because they're a bud tender or a trimmer or whatever, you know, just don't discount those people who are in the industry because they're, they're all, we're all very valuable members. Definitely. And I, I want to ask a little bit more about what you mentioned about um, that, the mint scenario. So what happened? Did you have to, you had to change the formula, I'm guessing, to launch yeah. in California. Did you end up rebranding it and it becoming a different product or almost finding something else that would have the same effect, but a different, you know, a, a compliant way to launch there? Yeah. And, is uh, a common problem. 
Sure. So in Colorado, there is a workaround. So there's a way that you can add those types of ingredients to your formula. You just, there's just a process uh, that you have to go through in order for it to be approved. But I think the mindset at the time was because we were expanding, you know, our footprint across other markets, we figured it would probably an issue be an issue that we'd have to face again some sometime in the near future. So we ended up reformulating that product, not necessarily rebranding it. But, you know, it was just sort of that messaging around it being just, you know, a new formula, at least for here in Colorado. That wasn't necessarily true for California because they never had that product on the on the shelf. So there was really no need to really change that messaging. But, yeah, it's a common it's a common issue for sure. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think most of these MSOs are they, they want to be sort of the next McDonald's right of cannabis. So. How do we get to the point where, again, we can create the really consistent products across all of our markets so that a consumer, no matter if they walk into a dispensary, bless you, (laughs) or in California or Colorado or Massachusetts, you know, they can rest assured that it's going to be the same product and the same experience every time. Yeah, that makes sense. And how do you approach education? You, you had mentioned it as important. We talk about it on this podcast a lot, that yeah. education about what products do and communicating that accurately and fairly to consumers is everything in this space. Um, but again, the public has di- differing levels as far as what they know about cannabis, the effects it has. And obviously the industry is limited as far as what we can say. Um, so how are some ways in which you approach it and developing your messaging? Like, how do you approach that process? And um, just any tips you have about about that level of honesty and transparency? Sure. Uh, you know, I think it starts at the bud tender level, once again. So platforms such as Learn Brands have been really great. You know, back in the day, we have to do all of our education face-to-face. The challenge with that is that bud tenders um, there's a pretty high t- turnover with them. So you could walk into a dispensary today and educate 30 bud tenders and then go back in a month from now and maybe a third of them have already been replaced with new faces. So in order to overcome that, um, some platforms have been built such as Learn Brands. Um, the Clear also has uh, Clear Cannabis University, which is our own internal um, platform that we use to educate bud tenders as well. The um, benefits about Learn Brands is that you can also sample products to them. So not only do they get an opportunity to learn about the product, but they also get an opportunity to actually try them for themselves and then can provide feedback. And that feedback is really valuable to brands so that we can really understand, um, you know, those core consumers and what they truly think about the product and kind of monitoring those responses that come in can start to, you can start to glean new um, information and maybe there's a new product that can spawn out of out of the the comments um so i think it's important uh digitally we still do traditional education at the clear so we still walk in with something we call a field guide which has a lot of great information um not only on the products but also the clear brand itself what kind of sets us apart from our manufacturing process you know how we scrutinize our hardware Uh, our quality of oil, the quality of terpenes that we're using, you know, all those different things that go into a a final product. So I think that it's, it's sort of, it's a multi pronged approach again, when it comes to bud tenders, right, just trying to hit them as often as you can, as many different ways as you can, from a consumer perspective, a lot of them are going to go to um, a manufacturer's website, a brand's website to find out more information about the products. 
Some of them are also going to go on to third-party directories such as Weed Maps, uh, Leafly, um, iHeartJane. You know, there's a multitude of them, and it's interesting to see you know the adoption rates from market to market, which market has a stronger uh, opinion about about which directory. So that that's another opportunity for us to serve up additional information. Um, for instance, on our packaging, we have, um, because we are so flavor forward, we put a scratch and sniff sticker on it. So the scratch and sniff sticker is identical, has the identical terpene, terpenes that we use in our products. And the consumer can actually scratch it and smell it before they purchase it. So it gives them a really, that's um, really cool. Yeah. It's a great way for them to kind of test or try the product before they buy it. Right. And then the great thing about it is we created them in these piggyback uh, stickers. So they're kind of, they're a peel and place sticker. So you can peel the little scratch and stiff sticker off of the package and place it onto your cartridge or your battery. So you always know what, what flavor you have or what formula you have, you know, that, that was always a challenge for me when I would buy, I don't know, five different cartridges, let's say I had laying around and one's maybe a sativa, one's an indica, one's a hybrid. I don't know what's what. I go to hit one, oops, that wasn't the effect I was looking yeah. for. So it really takes the guesswork out of, um, you know, especially when you're, you're trying to get a specific effect. The other uh, way that we continue to educate our consumers, and this also uh, goes back into some other effective marketing strategies is through uh, blogs. So, um, you know, staying on top of the most re recent SEO trends and creating content that's relevant and indexed properly is really important for brands. And a great way to do it is um, by utilizing blog posts with valuable in-depth content. Um, and that also helps establish brands as, you know, being a trusted authority on a specific subject. It's also a great opportunity to create backlinks. So if there's another, you know, if you want to reference something else or you're referencing a product in your blog and you want to drive consumers back to that product landing page, it's another great way to do that. You know, long content pieces of over 2000 words um, have been shown to really rank better when it comes to SEO. So I think it's still really important for, for brands to use that in their overall strategy to get more people to visit their site. And then once people are on the site, you know, creating a really great consumer journey for them to be able to find the information that they need and distill it down um, that's going to be most relevant to them. Um, so, you know, it's a, another great opportunity for education. Yeah, I, that's great. And I'm really glad you mentioned SEO because one of the things... Um, you know, we talk in the cannabis marketing community a lot about what we can't do. Um, there's certain channels that are close to us, like you had mentioned, as far as CPG marketing, but your website, your newsletter, your database, those are all owned channels that you have yeah. control over that information. Those, those can't be shut down, uh, so to speak. So your ability to put out good authoritative content and continue to build your rank is just a really sort of easy, no brainer strategy to keep doing. Um, and yeah, like you were saying, it builds trust with your um, consumers and, you know, uh, really whomever those stakeholders are, whether it's anyone hitting your site, bud tenders, you know, the ed end consumer, but having good information on your blog helps your ranking on Google. And it also helps that trust with wh whomever is coming there that they can search it and find what it is that they need. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know, you know, those SEO trends are important to stay on top of. So um, we have a um, marketing content specialist who really, you know, that that's mainly one of her, her core job functions is to really stay on top of those trends, make sure that we're um, creating content that is, 
is going to rank uh, appropriately. And, and I, you know, it, it is something, I don't know that everybody pays as much attention to it as they should, but it's definitely important. And then also, you know, looking at the data that's coming out of that on a monthly basis to see, you know, how, how we're doing, um, whether we need to adjust certain messaging content, whatever it is just to, to remain relevant, you know, in this industry, if you don't remain relevant, you're here today and gone tomorrow for sure. <laughs> yes, very much so the case. Um, and yeah. particularly as time goes on and things just seem to be moving faster and more, more folks get in, um, that's definitely one to, to consider. So, all right. So before we wrap up, just a few last questions. Um, where do you see the industry going within the next year or five years? Like how do you, and, and open that, however you see the future of cannabis. You know, I'm most hopeful for continued expansion of legalization, you know, across all states or hopefully at the federal level. I don't know if and when we'll get there. Um, you know, I firmly believe cannabis is a movement that nobody should be up at the top of the mountain sort of waving their hands, um, saying, look at me and what I've done, you know, declaring what they've done for the industry. You know, we're all in this together and we're a stronger cannabis community with all members kind of pulling on the same rope in the same direction. Um, so that's, that's kind of the way I've always felt about cannabis. You know, the, it, it's truly about community and, and the legalization of it, it really is a movement. Um, one important thing I think right now for operators is uh, safe banking. You know, it's a prime example of how the industry needs to continue to pull together to ensure we're creating a viable way for cannabis businesses um, in legal states to access banking services, products, you know, um, currently cannabis businesses they, that are operating within uh, legal states, you know, we have to conform to rigorous safety and compliance, um, but we're still operating with, honestly, really dangerous amounts of cash. Um, you know, back in the day, I remember when uh, the drivers at Dixie would go around and, and do runs and drop off product. Um, you know, they're all they're doing is taking in, you know, thousands of dollars of cash. It could be at every single location that they visit. And so they had a security detail that would follow them to make sure that they weren't endangered in any way. Um, you know, and then regulations came where they had to put safes actually inside the vehicles to house all of the cash. Um, I have heard of people having to take that cash and instead of being able to walk into a bank with it, because let's face it, this money smelled like weed. Um, I, I knew people who were taking the cash home and literally laundering it, putting it into their washer and dryer. So it wouldn't smell like marijuana when they walked a into washer? the bank. Yes. A washer and a dryer to literally clean the money so that it didn't smell like cannabis. Um, so I've, I've also heard of people taking large amounts of cash and putting it into an ATM. So they ha didn't have to deal with, uh, doing an in-person transaction, at, at, with a teller in a bank. Uh, but the challenge with that is that the ATM will only accept so much cash. So yeah. once you load it up with too much, it just stops. So, you know, you're limited to how much you can do in a day, let's say. So those types of things, you know, have continued to constrain legal operators from the ability to access, like I said, banking services, things like business loans, lines of credits, uh, credit card processing, and honestly, it's unconscionable, you know, for the for the federal government to allow this industry, you know, almost 10 years later now with adult use medical has been around for more than a decade 
to continue to operate um, with these constraints. So, you know, I think without safe banking, the industry really lacks the transparency needed to ensure full compliance. Um, and it just needlessly endangers industry workers, consumers, you know, we hear about robberies happening. And it also constrains companies such as the clear um, from accessing investment capital required to provide new products and services consumers want. Um, so, you know, I'm very hopeful that some of that will change in the near future. Yeah, I, I agree. That's, I mean, it always comes back to banking. You can't run a business without, yeah. you know, bank accounts, capital, that's the, the core of it. So the ability to, to do that is, is um, definitely a much needed step. Yeah, beyond that, you know, 280E is just, it really has a chokehold on the industry as well, you know. Um, I think most people have the misconception that people in the industry, cannabis industry are making money hand over fist, and that's just not the case. Um, a typical cannabis company is lucky if they net maybe three to 5% at the end of the day. I don't know that there's another industry out there, maybe grocery stores that have that kind of a return. Um, so, you know, I think the mysticism and the misconception of, of the cannabis industry just that those stigmas need to be broken um, because it's that that's not the reality. You know, the, the amount of money that we have to continue to invest back into our companies to keep them alive, whether that be capital for raw materials, hardware, packaging, uh, testing, compliance, licensing, um, you know, it, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah, no, it, it really does. And the business owners, particularly small business owners have to work so much harder to make sure that the whole systems are maintaining and, and, uh, working because there's that extra risk working in cannabis when you're looking for service providers. Um, yeah. And like you said, with 280E and specifically how it uh, relates to marketing, I mean, you can't really deduct your marketing and advertising expenses and people don't understand how much that changes your tax bill at the end of the year and what that means as far as investing in your own growth. So We'll see, but hopefully it changes. I share that, that wish with uh, all of us. Absolutely. And do you have any contact information you want to share a website, LinkedIn, maybe the clear social media, anything at all? Yeah, we have a multitude of social media accounts, but our main account on Instagram is going to be the clear concentrates. Um, And then our website is the clear concentrate with one E uh, dot com. That's our main website. Uh, we also have a corporate website for Clear Cannabis Incorporated. So that's going to be clearcannabisinc.com if you're looking to find out more information um, from an investor standpoint. Uh, and then uh, we also have different Instagram accounts set up for each one of our states. And the most recent one that we just launched for our new Bud Tender Network is going to be the clear underscore connect. So all you industry members can go there to find out more information and news about our upcoming events. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today and share your insight with the audience. Thank you, Lisa. I really appreciate you having me on today and uh, look forward to another opportunity. Definitely. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Party Like a Marketer. Follow us on Instagram at Party Like a Marketer and on our website, thecannabismarketingassociation.com. And be sure to join us in person this June 7th through 9th for the annual Cannabis Marketing Summit happening in Denver, Colorado. Check out our website for more details and membership information. We'll see you next time.